Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast site of graduate students, etc., etc. I'm Tristan Johnson with you today. <laughs> I'm keeping that. <laughs> you got a case of the giggles already? I do, I do. And I'm here today with Emma Bridgewater, my co-host for today. Good evening, everybody. And our guest today, uh, I guess I'm trying to think, probably our first guest from the Department of Music on the show's history. If not, then it escapes me at the moment. Chantal Lemire, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. So your research has to do with specifically uh, the spoken word work of Tom Waits. That's right. So we're going to talk about Tom Waits today. So if you like Tom Waits, good, good, you're in for a treat. And if you don't know who Tom Waits is, pause the podcast right now and go on YouTube and listen to some of his stuff and then come back. It's really good. Especially Waltz and Matilda. So I guess I'd like to get started. Uh, what, what, what academic-wise drew you towards the work of Tom Waits? Well, when I was working on my, uh, uh, my master's um, and I had to pick a thesis topic, I was struggling a lot to decide on what I wanted to do because I liked all sorts of different music and always wanted to analyze all sorts of different things. So one of my professors uh, gave me the advice of saying, like, well, what do, you, what do you love to listen to? What is it that, like you know, just lights fire or whatever. What do, you, what do you put on when you're walking home or when you wake up in the morning? And I said, well, Tom Waits. That's what I listen to for breakfast. That's what I do, what I love. And he said, okay, well, why don't you check that out? Why don't you listen to that and see what's there? And uh, the two of us listened to a, to a bunch of different songs. And at one point, he asked me the question as to whether or not I, lo- I loved the Tom Waits because of the, his words. He's an excellent poet or because of the music, and I said, well, I don't see a separation between those two things. And he said, bada boom, bada bing, there's your thesis. Dang, if only it was that easy. <laughs> uh, so from, what, from the stuff from the material you sent us, you said you're discussing about uh, something that music theorists don't really look at, and that is, uh, so you talk about, you're talking about the genre of spoken word. That's right, yeah. And spoken word has been done by literary critics, by people who study poetry, things like that, but no one's tackled it as music. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that whenever um, I'm, I look and try to find sort of studies on spoken word uh, specifically, or even spoken word song, and I make that differentiation in terms of whether there's a musical accompaniment or not. Um, I've like found a number of different dissertations and a lot of work in literary studies and um, um, literary criticism and uh, in cultural studies, uh, anthropology, um, in oral traditions, but but never in the realm of musicology or music theory. It seems somehow eschewed, and I think a part, part of that is connected to the kind of touchy sh- subject of what is speech and what is music. Um, it's, it's, that's a really tricky one. Um, but I think that there's something to be said about studying spoken word song in particular, which more than anything else, more than song itself, pop music or classical music, more than rap even, really combines the two, um, speech and music, in, in their natural form, so that you, you can start to engage, certainly not answer, but engage with that question of, how do these things work? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what? Type, I mean, 
to kind of like go to like the super, super like 30,000 foot look, I think that a lot of people would be interested in just knowing how do, uh, would you call uh, musicologists, right? So how do musicologists approach these kinds of questions? Um, well, there's one... Uh well, there was one really interesting study back from the from the eighties um, called uh, Generative Theory of Tonal Music by Lodal and Jackendoff, and that was a pairing of a music theorist and um, a linguist. Uh, and uh, the sort of first approach to looking at musical rhythm, and sort of like nowadays stemmed from that and they took actually a lot of the ideas from um, Lieberman and Prince uh, uh, Lieberman and Prince's work in, in linguists in ling linguistics so some of our theories as to musical structure musical rhythm actually comes from linguistics but of course the studies that they would have used in uh, in the 80s are a bit dated in linguistics <laughs> now, right? And it's actually quite interesting. So this book came out in 1983 in music, uh, the generative um, uh, theory of, of tonal music. Um, but within a year or so uh, in linguistics, those studies um, had been taken as a platform and, and linguists moved like far beyond what had been done there. But music, mu music theorists never really picked up after that point. Um, and so we've seen a lot of branches of rhythm theory and music continue on, still based on those principles um, and not really connecting back to where linguistics have. Yeah, uh, in the humanities we do that with Freud. So, <laughs> um, so like, uh, let's like look at uh, then how musicologists approach questions. So, like I'm thinking, how should I put this together? So, yeah, I completely brain farted, I'm sorry. Like, what are some of our theories of rhythm or meter in, in music? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or? Let's, let, let's like, like expand, uh, expand my mind. I'll go with, like, what I think about music theory or what I think it is. Uh, <laughs> what, what my, oh, what my no. public education music theory has gotten me to. Yeah, okay. And okay. then you can talk about it, like, how it's way much more than what most people listening would know at this right. moment. Yeah. So, like, I think of it as the, the grammar and and lexicon of the language of when you see the bars and the beats and the, the time signatures and, and all that. And like that, the study of that mm -hmm. is what I conceive of as music theory. Yeah. But I imagine it goes way deeper than that. Yeah, well, I'm, I think like, generally speaking, that's a pretty good way to look at it. I think that music, music theory, like any other um, field centered around theory um, is like, and it's, for me, in its general terms, kind of making stuff up, right? Like coming up with coming up with ideas as to how something might work, trying to find systems, um, and trying and trying to re constantly re-examine systems and apply those systems in certain ways to see how things work. So the kind of theory that um, a lot of people will learn in early music education and stuff like that, or if you, if you're Canadian and have ever done the Royal Conservatory of Music, you've had to take some theory, what we call theory courses, and those range from rudiments, how to read music, how to understand scales, how to understand the circle of fifths, how chords interact with one another, um, meter and stuff like that, understanding 4-4 four, four time or 2-4 time or 3-4 time, all that kind of stuff. Um, and all of those things have, uh, we, we sort of learn them um, in stuff like RCM or when we're younger as kind of um, tr truths, right? But each one of them has a really, really long history as to um, uh, history as to how we came to really know these things. For example, chord functions, the circle of fifths, and understanding 
uh, tonic, dominant, and subdominant. These are our sort of main three chords that we have. I should have brought my ukulele to play them. But. Oh, that would be um, awesome. <laughs> All right, part time. two, part two. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, those things, um, it was back with um, Rameau during the Enlightenment that he wrote uh, treatise after treatise trying to really articulate and, and, um, and make space as um, for understanding those chord functions as real functional things um, and, and as a kind of science, you know? So we learned them in ICM or whatever in young childhood as sort of truths, but people fought real hard to, to convince a lot of people, to convince the music you know, world that these are real concepts and real, real theories that are workable, you know? So they're trying to universalize it into the one system, because like yeah. the first time when I saw the the Hindustani uh, system mm -hmm. with the quarter tones and everything like right, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, my mind was blown. So like, is it, is it now moving into a situation where they're, we're trying to like take all these different, like people, different ways people have written music all over the world and unify under this umbrella or? Yeah, yeah, and trying to see ways that, um, uh, that they can work for multiple different genres. Like, so when I, like taking up Tom Waits uh, puts me sort of in a category of being a, a popular music scholar, right? And what happens in popular music um, oftentimes is that a lot of the, the theory and scholarship focuses around rhythm and meter as and not necessarily, not as often harmony because our, our harmonic theories are, have been developed for this sort of like um, uh, ger German high art music that uses very, very complicated harmonic schemes and, and harmonic languages um, that we wouldn't necessarily see in a, in a Loretta Lynn song, for example, right? Like, so... Um, Maybe. Yeah, uh, maybe. Because maybe like, like we do yeah. see it, for sure. There's a lot of mu musicians, artists out there, popular music artists that are doing incredible things. I think Rufus Wainwright, for example, has some really fantastic harmonic structures going on, right? But typically speaking, um, it, may not, it might not necessarily be the, the harmonic progressions in a pop song that are, that are the most fascinating thing. What becomes really fascinating in popular music is, um, is groove how groove is established and how rhythms work together or how a drum kit adds some kind of like, how it, how it makes you want to tap your fingers or move your elbows or stomp your feet, right? Oh yeah, I, I did a year of audio engineering and record producing, mm -hmm. like school for that. And I just remembered that when you get to like the really good people, the people who make all the pop music, like this stuff is like a science. They know exactly, like, they know how, they know that um, two and four work, three, right, one yeah. and three are yeah. pointless. And like they know all this like, like they, like, there's like a, a person who sonically looked at all pop music and the, that charted on Billboard over mm -hmm. the last like 40 years, and it's converging. Like they're finding the most efficient songs. Absolutely, yeah. And that's I think one of the coolest things that you see in pop music is this. Um, it's something in theory. Oh, and that's another part of what theory is. We like to make up fancy words. We like to develop, <laughs> like, like create fancy words for things that everybody intrinsically understands, right? So one of those fancy concepts we That's talk like about. actually the best title for theory. <laughs> like if you if there's a dictionary definition for theory, that should yeah. be Yeah. <laughs> I think arguably it applies to most of academia. Yep, yep. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, but yeah, so one of one of these concepts that we that um, a fellow named Matthew Butterfield recently um, in the mid-2000s started talking about his participatory discrepancies. And actually, I should say that there's another fellow, Charles, Charles Keel, who first sort of brought this to being. But Butterfield has made it really um, present in pop analysis. And this idea of participatory discrepancies is this um, is attributes to artists some kind of intentionality for, for being off 
the exact time of a beat, right? So that when you're just slightly early for a beat, that that's intentional, that that does something that drives you forward, right? Um, and, uh, and that, I think, adds an incredible, a, a really interesting layer of complexity to popular music that we don't necessarily think about as often in classical music because it was preserved in a different format, right? Yeah, and I always think, because like I when I studied that part, I think it's like syncopation is like the term or something like that. Yeah. It's it, it, it that it was it literally was invented in the 1950s mm. by by Jamaicans right. and then they brought it up uh, at, with with ska music basically as yeah. it started yeah well certainly we see syncopation in in all kinds of like classical music and that's happening as a thing but this sort of like um i think we would call it sort of subsyntactical syncopation stuff that's happening underneath um underneath the like the actual music structure that's enhancing the drive behind it. Mm-hmm. That's something that really, I think, comes comes out very strongly in, in uh, world musics and uh, in popular music as well. So, I mean, I remember taking music theory as a child and I remember hating it. So, <laughs> What, what drew you to, to do music theory and focus on that in particular? Because I know we have a very strong performance graduate program here as well, and I know that the music theory program is quite a bit smaller. So why, mm. and so why did you decide to, to go that route? That's an interesting question, Emma. I also had to do, so when I did my undergrad, I was uh, in performance. My instrument is viola. And I also hated music theory <laughs> with a passion. I went to as few courses as I could possibly go to, was like perfectly happy with scraping by, you know, with a 68. 65, totally fine with me, didn't care. I thought of theory as some sort of hoop you had to jump through in order to do real music, which is performing, you know? Um, And when I went on to do um, my master's uh, in viola performance as well, um, I ended up taking this course called uh, The History of Music Theory, which really um, intrigued me because I had never thought about music theory. I never thought about historiography before. I never thought about music theory as having a history, I always thought of these things as truths. And so when I took this course, I was introduced to, and this, this particular course ran from classical, like the time period it covered was from classical antiquity to uh, just before Remo, so just before the Enlightenment. And um, over the course of that period of time in music history, um, a big topic of conversation was tuning and temperament systems. And it sort of blew my mind to discover that uh, that that in that to get as to get to equal temperament, which is what our pianos are tuned in, what we use pretty much all the time these days, to get there took hundreds of years of work. That it was actually um, a Dutch a Dutch scientist uh, Eugene Fokker who first was able to do the math to to show how equal temperament works because he was the first person to ever use logarithms, right? And that you need that in order to work out, he had to do it by hand, it's an extraordinary, and it took off also with Simon Stephen. Um, and to me, that had always been, I'd, something I had never thought about, you were sort of in tune or out of tune. But by understanding this like history of tuning and temperament, I saw a sort of like, I was introduced to a world of the nuances and how, impo- and, uh, and, and how integral theory is to understanding this language. And so I think it was at the, at the point of taking this course um, that I sort of realized um, because I hadn't paid that much attention to theory, because I hated it, because I wasn't able to draw the connection between what I was doing in theory and what I was doing in performance, I realized that in some, in some ways I had, I had learned how to uh, recite, say for example, I would re- recite lines of a play 
that is in a language that I don't speak. And, uh, and while I might be able to produce something that a native speaker of that language might consider to be some kind of reasonable interpretation, it wasn't because I had come up with that interpretation. It was because I had been trained how to inflect things correctly, but yet I still didn't know how I was saying, uh, what I was saying. And so my first initial exposure really to taking theory seriously inspired me that if I wanted to understand the language that I was speaking, th this seemed like the way in to me. And so I, I decided to do in a second master's and <laughs> go back and do theory and fell in love. Yeah. And so uh, I, I, I give you my sincere condolences as someone who's also done two masters. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's take it now. We, 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 we've gone, let's come back and mm -hmm. talk about Tom Waits mm -hmm. and spoken word. So how does spoken word or Tom Waits in general fit into, like, what are you fighting for? Yeah, so there's this, uh, this uh, drama theorist um, and director, um, Richard Schechner, who uh, at one point talked about, uh, he said something like, um, if we wanted anything, pretty much anything we can think of can be studied as performance. And, uh, and recently in music theory, there's been a lot of push, uh, in particular by a fellow named Nicholas Cook, to, um, to start to consider music as performance. And he has this recent book that came out a couple of years ago called Beyond the Score, Music as Performance. And that's his big thesis to try and see it not as music as a score, but music as the living process of doing, right? Um, and so I thought about that and thought that, if, well, if we can think of music as performance, and pretty much anything we want to study, we could study as performance, then it's not a far cry to start thinking about speech as performance and therefore for its musical elements or as, as music sort of in quotations, right? To not, so, so I have to say that I'm not claiming that speech is music, but it's because speech has the potential to, to become musical material, right? Mm. And so with Tom Waits, what really struck me about his spoken word songs um, uh, was how every once in a while when I would listen to some of them, I would find myself humming along to him speaking. And I thought, how strange is that? I know he's speaking. I can tell that this is speech. It doesn't sound like rap. It doesn't sound like singing. And yet, for some reason, there was enough sort of like pitch frequency connections and enough rhythmic relationships that I could intuit some kind of melody going on there. Um, and so, so and that one of the particular songs I think that really stands out with that is um, called Crossroads. And that's from his 1992 album, um, the Black Rider, um, and uh, and it's a really neat one that uh, wh where the speech and the music is like so closely intertwined that um, that 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 the speech becomes more than just speech. It's more than just that. It is it's musical material. Yeah. All right, Chantel. So uh, just like uh, wrap up, like what would you say, like? If you had a pres if someone wanted to follow up on the research you're doing, mm -hmm. where would they want to go? Like, do you have an online presence somewhere where they can find the stuff you're doing? No. No. <laughs> uh, 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 all right. So just uh, just look up Chantal Lemire in a few years, and it'll turn up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. 
You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time. Thank you.